Hey, welcome to the Gig Life Podcast. I'm your host, Stevie Taylor. This is episode 99. Harry Bruce, here we go. Today is bass player Harry Bruce. Born in Austria, Harry and his family moved to Australia when he was seven years old. Inspired by Hank B. Marvin and the Beatles, Harry first picked up the guitar as a teenager. In 1965, his band The Amazons scored a record deal with Festival Records, and since then, he's never stopped working as a professional musician. In 1967, Harry jumped at the chance to play lead guitar for pop idol Johnny Young and later joined Tony Gaha and The Inn People. A fortunate encounter with sax great Jeff Oakes started Harry's lifelong affair with soul music. During these years, Harry discovered bass giant James Jamison, whose legendary bass style became Harry's true inspiration on the bass. Jamison, the great Chuck Rainey and Jerry Jamot became the three gentlemen of bass who inspired Harry's own unique bass style. Harry's played with a host of Australian and New Zealand greats. Mother Earth, Renee Geyer, Kevin Borich, Australian Crawl, Tommy and Phil Emanuel, Barry Leaf, Marsha Hines, Jimmy Barnes and countless others. A workhorse of a musician, a true Australian music legend, this has kept Harry in the game for 53 years and counting. This one's a cracker, so sit back and open your ears to some of the life and times of Mr Harry Bruce. All right, I think we're rolling. Great. Harry Bruce, welcome to the Gig Life podcast. It's great to be here. Man, no, no, I'm, I'm, it's great to be here in your house. <laughs> Thanks for having me here. It's, it's, um, it's nice to be out doing these again face-to-face because um, obviously during the COVID thing um, we've had to adapt to online and video and that kind of thing. So it's, yeah. it's great to be sitting in front of you, sir, and... Honoured to be here. Fantastic. Yeah. It's a chuffed to be part of it. Yeah, great. Awesome. Um, first thing I wanted to ask is your nickname's The Doctor. What, why do they call you The Doctor? Well, basically it's part of a Russell Morris joke. Okay. Because I'd fitted in with the fact that I would be the veterinarian, like the doctor that would come off – closed in the practice and come on the road with him. And he's told that story for years <laughs> to the audiences, right? Okay. And so they... And they believed it. Of course they believed it. <laughs> but his line... But he started with a real doctor, but his line was, and, you know, Harry's a veterinarian. Like, <laughs> Harry got caught making love to one of his patients and uh, <laughs> he, for a veterinarian, that's not... <laughs> so... So that was basically, uh, but you know, once he started calling me doctor for years on end, the doctor, and and the, the, I'll tell you an amazing story. Then mm. Russell's in the dressing room there at Calandra, and this lady came in, and she said, "Don't you remember you delivered my baby?" 
Oh, she thought she recognised <laughs> me delivering her baby, right? So because right. Russell is a doctor and all that. Yeah, right. <laughs> I think Russell nearly fell fell on the floor then when oh. he realised the impact he was having with his stories. Right? Did you roll with it? Yeah, I, I basically all I could say, "Oh, did I have a moustache?" <laughs> That's all I could say. <laughs> that's crack up. Oh, that's brilliant. Oh man. Um, all right. So we're we're um, we're in October now. Um, the last bunch of months we've been dealing with this COVID thing. And um, what I've been asking to start off is uh, how what you were up to leading up to COVID. What did you have in the pipeline? What got blown out? Well, basically, you know, the timing of it all was amazing because I, I was dealing with an autoimmune disease for five years, right? Which was ulcerative colitis. Okay. And it, right at uh, when this whole thing started, February, I ended up in hospital for six weeks. So while this lockdown was happening, my, my wife was telling me about the lockdown. I was I right. was locked down in a bed for six weeks, right. right on then. And then I had my colon out. Right. And ever since that, it's been fantastic. I'm back to normal, doing normal gigs. Oh, so modern medicine is pretty incredible. When for five years I was struggling at gigs and really not, you know, the the passion of playing would get you through. Mm. But you've, you know, I used to feel really, really terrible a lot of times. And now after this operation for the last four or five months playing, I'm, I feel normal and I oh, don't have to worry about fantastic. feeling bad. I'm just playing. Mm. So I'm, I'm very happy about the, the outcome. But like I said, I missed the whole lockdown. I was right. <laughs> That's really cool. Now with that with that, um, that disease, was it, I, I can understand the, like the internal pain and stuff, but was it actually like physically uncomfortable to have a base well, sitting around your stomach? It got to a stage when it first hit that I had to sit on a stool uh-huh. with my feet perched on a pedestal right. because it, it where it manifested itself yep. was incredible cramps in the feet. Oh, wow. So the harder I play, the more intense that got. So right. what I had to do, I started using light strings, right. sitting on a chair and and still having a reasonably good time. But yeah, that was – but then I just got – onto another drug and I was having infusions every six weeks of three hours of this drug and then right. that got me back up to doing gigs and standing up and playing. But oh, I was still, mm. you know, I was still dealing. But now I'm back to how I was ten years ago. So it's, it's oh, fantastic. It's, it's definitely I'm a, I'm a happy man. Oh, good stuff. Harry Bruce 2.0. <laughs> good stuff. And, uh, yeah, it looks like things are starting to um, – to calm a little bit, um, in Sydney especially, um, you know, who knows when the, the gigs will be well, firing back up. And What I've noticed at my gigs, which I've been a few lately, mm-hmm. uh, is people seem to be enjoying gigs a lot yeah, more. Yeah. It's because they Took didn't it for granted miss for their so water long. till it was gone. Exactly, you know? yeah. So I, do, I have noticed, like the other night at uh, the Butcher's Brew, we were playing away and I couldn't believe the clapping every solo intensely and they were really into it, which is sometimes mm. people just, you know, get a bit blasé about music. But mm. at the moment there's quite a renewed interest, I think. That's good. Are people allowed to stand up and dance yet not or is really, it still the not sit really. down? Yeah, it's still sit down, but mm. it's amazing how they adapt and you can still have a good time. Mm. Well, that's good. Yeah. That's good. All right, let's... um. 
let's roll right back to where it all began. Now you're from, um, see if I can pronounce this properly, Graz. Graz, yeah. Graz. Yeah, that's yep. where Arnie comes from. I was about to ask. I read that somewhere and I was going to ask you if that was yeah. if that was true. That's and where how, Arnie's come from. Yeah, yeah, and how's this? One week apart, Hermie Kovacs from Ted Mullery Gang, right. was, we were born one week apart in that town. Is that right? <laughs> it's like we could both come out here playing in rock and roll bands. It's <laughs> <laughs> pretty crazy, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it is. Um, do you have many memories of, because I know you left You left there when you were about seven. seven. Yeah. Do you have many memories of of those years? That, oh, the really town great or? memories, mainly because it was cows and mountains okay. and mm-hmm. farms and so it was very idyllic really, but, you know, like my parents are pretty poor so we didn't have a lot of money but it was, it never showed. Right. But uh, came out here and incredible thing when I hit, Australia, I was fluent in English in six months. Is that right? Bang. That's how quick kids, kids are just like on fire right. at that age. That's it. It's like you just all day, you just. That, yeah. So, and my my parents sort of, my mum was pretty cool. My dad was even towards the end of, before he still did, didn't have it down really greatly, the language. So, you know, it's amazing when you're young, you can. And you notice I don't have an Austrian accent. Yeah, it's yeah. it's more a Newtown accent. <laughs> it's, <laughs> right, it's where I grew up right. in the early days. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. Um, do you have memories of any sort of music over there, back there? Just seeing the the dancers and piano accordions. It didn't, you know, I, I it didn't sort of hit until I think I got about twelve, and mm-hmm. and, and the shadows hit. Yeah, you know, the Hank, was, Hank B. Marvin yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that was an awakening. Right. From then on, it was like, wow, Yeah. something about this. Yeah, that's cool. Um, I was, would would you have come across on a boat from? Yeah, it was called a 10-pound ticket. Oh, right. That's what the migrant ticket, that's what it cost to come out here, 10 pounds. It was a six-week voyage from Naples. Right. So, I mean, I still remember the time on the boat. It was a fantastic mm. young kid running around the boat. Yeah, right. <laughs> Six right. weeks. Mm. So we came here. We went to a camp called Greta Camp, which was out of Newcastle there, mm-hmm. Greta, and uh, basically moved to Hamilton in Newcastle. Okay. Where I went to school, Catholic school there first, and then to Sydney and from there on, Moved around to Newtown. Okay, so that that um, camp in up Newcastle Way was it like a migrant camp yeah. where everybody sort of exactly you all had your round tin hut, right? Basically, and I think we were there about three months. It was pretty okay. good, you know. Sort yep. of. Mm. Mm. Your parents were they um, musicians themselves? Well, my mum was a really good singer. She could really sing and my dad was a piano accordion player. Okay. So it's definitely a thread of it there. My brother didn't seem to take it on at all. Mm. So, But I, I sort of, uh, I found that once you've got that passion and interest, things move pretty fast. Mm. Because I remember like when I started with my first band and then went to see the Beatles live which was pretty oh, fantastic, wow. you know, that blew my brains out. You know, mm. imagine going to see the Beatles. So yeah. the incredible thing is this is how fast things 
moved musicians in those days. Yeah. In 18 months, I played on that stage. Is that right? It's the Sydney Stadium, the biggest right. gig in, in Australia. Right. And in 18 months from seeing the Beatles, I was on that stage playing. Wow. And not that I was that great. It was just that, you know, a bit of timing and yeah. the fact that I could play a bit better than a lot of other guys. So Did you... Did you Taken the weight of that moment, did you? Were you oh, going? Yeah. You go, wow, yeah, just, this is it. <laughs> Paul was right here exactly. playing the bass right here. Exactly, because yeah, yeah. you know, I mean, you know, and people say, but you went to see the Beatles. How could you hear anything with a screaming? Yeah. And what it was is those songs were melted into your heart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that all you saw was the moving, but you're <laughs> you're playing the song in your yeah, you've, body. You've got the record playing in your <laughs> yeah, head. Yeah, so gotcha. I mean yeah. that's how you you so you're experiencing it anyway. You know, from from having having heard so much of those songs, mm. and their set was thirty one minutes. Wow, that that's all? it. That was it. Six Australian bands on. <laughs> I was going to say, was it support? Yeah, support yeah. Action? Johnny Devlin, all the Australian bands were on, and uh, Beatles were on for thirty one. Minutes. Mm. So uh, it was a great time. And like uh, about a year later, Eric Burden and the Animals came to town. Right. And I was working with a band called the Dave Millicent. Mm-hmm. And uh, I get a phone call Oh, the Animals want to hire your bass amp. <laughs> so I took it down to the stadium, set it up for them, and they blew it up at the sound check. <laughs> this is Eric Burden. Right. Came, Eric, Eric come out, came over and said, Oh, sorry about that, Bella. You know? Do you buy your new one? You know what? They what? I think the bass player came over and said, "Oh, mate, he had grabbed this. It was a fantastic crown valve amp. That wasn't his to give me, <laughs> right? Yeah. So I just took it. It was fantastic. Oh, great. You still got it? <laughs> no, no. Yeah. Unfortunately, those days things moved. I, I lost a lot of things. That, right. You know that. Right. And basically, uh, you should have held on. I was buying L series Strats in the Sydney Morning Herald for 150 bucks. <laughs> That's what they were. If only you knew, eh? <laughs> if only. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. Um, all right, well, let's, let's go back to that moment um, because you, you started playing guitar yeah. first, didn't you? Right. Yeah. And, and, I was, and you were a lead guitarist. That's right. And mm. my biggest claim to fame is I did a tour playing lead guitar for Johnny Young right. when he was a pop star with yep. all those pop hits. So right. that was a real jangly guitar okay. stuff and all playing lead and... Uh, it was great, but then the bass seemed to call to me. You know, it does, you know, yeah, just yeah. naturally. And yeah. uh, that's when I joined um, the Dave Miller set and then moved on to probably the, the a fellow called Jeff Oaks. You wouldn't know him, but he's one of Australia's greatest sax players. Okay. And he hired me in his band, but he was full on soul. Before that, I was more of, uh, say, you know, rock and roll, sort of rock and roll, yeah. you know, yeah. all those young rascals covers and mm. all that. And with him, it was like Sam and Dave and Wilson Pickett, and like, mm. and I think something he awakened something in me. To, I found, oh yeah, this is this is where I because basically my whole style is I'm a soul bass player, yeah, yeah, like Duck Dunn or somebody, yeah, you know, yeah. Of, that style and that he set me on that road because I joined that band and found out how great it was to uh, to play. And we used to play a vanilla fudge number called Keep Me Hanging On. Mm-hmm. And then the amazing thing about 
13 years later, I got to play with Carmine Apiece from Is that right? Fudge. Oh, right. Can you imagine what that was like? Yeah, yeah. For a young, you know, like, yeah, yeah. flip me out, that guy. Yeah, right. it was in his Rod Stewart days, you yeah. know. Yeah, yeah, So, but Jeff Oaks set me on this old path and uh, I'm thankful for that because it was where I discovered James Jamison. Right. In the midst of all that. And I think, you know, it would be very hard to imagine how much work I put into uh, James Jamison. <laughs> It was at the point where I would practice until pain set in and I'd stop right. and next day work a bit longer and mm. it was like, you know, it's a very – and I'm glad I did it because you can look on YouTube with the millions of bass players that love James Jamison. There's not one that does it, does the hook except the way you, I do. Except, the, you, no you, except your videos. Yeah. Yeah. No one does it. Yeah. They, what they do is a light little t- version yeah, yeah, yeah. of it. I do it serious because it. it's 45 years of getting to that stage. Gotcha. You know? so, so I'm very proud of that in the sense that, you know, a lot of people would love to do the hook but what it is, they're not willing to go through years of pain. Yeah. You know, it's like to make one finger do the work of two, you know, all that, the time. That's it. We'll talk a little bit more about your technique a bit later because I've got some questions about that. But just roll back a little bit to... Um, any lessons that you got? How did you did you get any kind of formal lessons from anybody at that, or you just picked up a guitar? Totally and picked it up in those someone days. Someone you chords, just, and you just had to learn. There was nothing that no one taught you anything. Mm. I remember Maurice Gibb from the yep. Bee Gees taught me a couple of things back right. because he'd come in lunchtime. I was working in the record bar at Nicholson's, which was okay. so you meet everybody, mm. and he'd be downstairs lunchtime because he was such a sociable guy, he'd be teaching us young guys because he was a, you know, he was a good player. Mm. And so he would he'd teach us some some of the new lines that we hear from the searchers or, you know, all yeah, those wow. bands. And Maurice would teach us the guitar lines. You know, sweet oh. guy. And I think his brother was upstairs looking at the records. You know? Right. <laughs> um, what about working out <laughs> scales and that kind of stuff? Did that... Did that come later? I've never played a scale in my life. Is that right? Okay. I don't know one note of music. Mm-hmm. I've never played a scale. I don't know what a scale is. I don't wow. know. No idea. Mm-hmm. It's all like what feels good for yeah, that song, yeah. you know, yeah. or that chord. or. And you would just learn shapes and. Yeah. It's more in the sound. Trial and error of, and that's, that yeah. doesn't sound any good. Change it. Yeah, exactly. gotcha. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's why, I mean, I, I really... Uh, revel in the situation where you have to think on your feet all the time, mm-hmm. where some people can't handle that. They want it mapped out, you know, and mm-hmm. I don't like that that much because I've been in a few gigs that were, were like that. They weren't much fun, you know. Mm-hmm. Whereas, say, being with someone like Renee Gayer, he, she she encouraged you to change it every night. Right. So wow. every song that you heard with Renee, most of it was ad lib with the musicians they weren't playing what they played last night. Oh, we'll try this, you know, and do this. So she was probably one of the only people that let you get away with that because mm. it did work when you have good musicians and they have their own head of what to do tonight mm. rather than la- last night. And it's free, it's wide open. Right. Which is great. She's very uh, free in that way. Right. And was she was she also like that for herself, the way that she would sing, yeah. sing the songs? And, exactly. She, right. Totally different all the time. She used to play with it and she wouldn't bring, there was no set list with Renee. There was no like, right. I didn't know what you were playing. You just went out on stage, you know. Right. <laughs> and she'd just call out the song or, you know. And I, because I'd been with her close to 30 years, mm. I, I really got a handle on 
on when to go to the bridge right. or when to do this. And if I didn't do it, we'd be stuck in one spot. Right. So, gotcha. so I always used to have the initiative, mainly because, I, you know, a lot of people were scared of her because mm. she's a, a bit of a diva mm-hmm. and incredible, incredible musician because her, her timing is, is so incredibly far back, relaxed. It's like an old... 80-year-old blues musician. I mean, and we're, yeah, seriously, with with our metre as far as the way we feel rhythms, we're we're way on top of it. Mm. She's like like Billie Holiday or someone pulled right back. Mm. So it was incredible to be in that situation because what it made you do is pull everything back as far as grooves. Instead of going this way, it's more like pushing that way. Yeah. You played in that band as well as some other bands with with one of my favourite Australian drummers, John Watson. Oh yeah, Wado. Mm. I mean, just fantastic. One of the best moves was getting him into the band because mm-hmm. he he was the number was the toughest guy around then. He still is, you know. Yeah. <laughs> He's like amazing. Yeah. And uh, the incredible thing is, he paid me back by getting me an Aussie crawl. Right. So it was like. Payback, it was fantastic. And then getting that Aussie Crawl gig was one of the highlights of my life because you can imagine finally being in a situation where it's good money, mm. great conditions, mm. great people. They, they were really nice people. Like, they, you know, you get you might join some big rock bands where there's big egos yep. and not that band. They were just out to have a good time, whereas James Rain was probably the only serious musician who would go back to his hotel room and start writing, you know, oh, instead right. of everyone's out there partying and James is in the room writing. Right. So he was always very serious about it. The rest of the guys were just having a good time, like wonderful. Got people like Brad Robinson, Sweethearts, and Simon Binks, the guitar player. They were really, like, so I was very lucky that I was in that for a couple of years. Mm. And, yeah, you, you got to play on... Um between a rock and a hard place, and that yeah. was that was one of the last albums. It was right? the last the studio album. Studio the last album. album was Final Wave, which was the My Music Bowl concert, which the was live a, thing. a yep. cracker, you mm-hmm. know. So yep. we really played fantastic on that one. I mm-hmm. think if you compare that Final Wave album to the original old Aussie Crawl, I think you'd get a shock at how tough uh, we made it, like the rhythm section really toughened up from those early days because right. Watto just... He really didn't take any prisoners. Yeah. And he made all those songs five times as tough as they ever were. You know? Yeah. Yeah, awesome. That's really cool. Well, let's – we we are bouncing around and I think that's cool. That's we'll cool, just yeah. let it go and we'll take it back wherever or forward or wherever it yeah, goes. Yeah, I'm sure you get an idea of where to go. Yeah, yeah. Um, now let's go back to um, – the Johnny Young thing, you start playing guitar. Um, how long did that go go for and then when that, when was that? That was just a tour in 1967 because we'd done the Easter show in April mm-hmm. with backing Ronnie Burns mm-hmm. who was, apart from Johnny Young, the next biggest pop star. And he was another sweet guy. You know, it's so great to see these guys and they're really nice guys, you know. Right. Ronnie's a sweetheart. Mm. And uh, we were doing 14 shows a day. Jesus. What? Yeah, at the Easter show. And what a, you know, what a, imagine you, here I am, um, 18 years old, in a really nice suit, which because Ron Bennett sponsored us. Right. Yeah, so right. we had these flash suits and, 
and we're playing away and there's girls screaming and tearing like Ronnie off the stage. And after a while you just don't even blink when you see <laughs> these girls being dragged off. Right. This was going on all the time. I mean, the incredible thing is after I did that Easter show, I got like a garbage bag full of fan letters. I mean, I'm talking for, about... For you. For me. Awesome. Yeah, <laughs> just for me, just... It was amazing. It was like, and then really beautiful because the country girls had never seen anything like that. Right. So, I mean, they came from all over all over Australia really. And uh, Pretty good for the ego, that stuff. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you, you can imagine I walked out to get an orange drink side door once and they jumped on me and I had my new suits ripped and the, and the oh, bouncers wow. are dragging me. <laughs> they're dragging me in through the side door. Uh, <laughs> so it was like a taste of what these rock stars go through. Wow. You know, it's like... Because well, it only lasted a couple, a couple of a week or so, but wow, it was a pretty, pretty intense. Mm-hmm. Now the the changeover from guitar to bass, right? So yeah, um, was was there a moment there where you just? Because you, you said a little bit earlier that you were kind of drawn to the bass. Was there one thing you saw or you heard? Well, I can tell you the turning point of when I was. Uh, just a, a a bass player just playing bass and then getting serious. And the turning point was I was in the Dave Miller set mm. and I pulled in a guitar player called John Robinson who was pretty famous in Australia in the sense of Blackfeather and all that later on. He was the first heavy metal god we had. Right. John Robinson was, but in these days, he was a Hank Martin guy with a crew cut. So right. I got him in the band. Right. And within three months... He got me sacked. Right. Right. I got him in, I got him in his big break and he got me sacked and basically got one of his friends in who could play better than me. Right. Who grooved and all that and basically sat down with me and he said, you know, you just, you just got to play with a bass drum. You just got, and, you know, because I'm not an idiot, I I realised I wasn't, you know, like I thought, well, you know, one of those things. But from that point on when he told me that, Man, did I get with the bass drum? Right. So that <laughs> from, was from like the, the sixty seven. Yeah, right. Sixty seven from the, so from then on I knew mm. what I was doing wrong. Right. So I I sort of started really working on it and working on it. now when I get with a drummer, I'm so slick with the bass drum, it's ridiculous, you know, because yep. but not all the time religiously, because that gets robot like, you know. I'm talking about the right times of hitting hitting it with the bass drum. Mm-hmm. So that came from that experience and from that time on when I got that sack, it was the best thing that ever happened to me because I took off. From then I, I started getting all the gigs like I had. Wow. Like uh, got from Jeff Oaks, like I was telling you about, the soul guy, got the gig in uh, Tony Gahan in, people house band at Checkers, mixing with Billy, jamming with Billy Preston all week, you know, like him on the hammer and the rest of us just jamming with him. It was mm. just amazing. And so from from that I went into hair. So you can imagine what right. hair was like in 69. It was free love and so that was an incredible gig. Cause you how, how long were you doing that? For about eight months. Right. And I, Was that a reading gig for most, well, most of the people in the band? It's a, it's a fantastic story how I got the gig. Yeah. The bass player that was doing the gig ended up, he got deported because he... Uh, robbed his own bank on acid. He was <laughs> tripping on acid and he went in there with a gun 
and <laughs> robbed his bank in the teller with a lady who recognised, oh, Reno, <laughs> right? <laughs> so this uh, is true. It's like yeah, he, 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 the cops arrived at his house and in the front room counting the money. Oh, man. <laughs> so anyway, he spent a few years here yeah. in jail and then they deported him. But anyway, he was the bass player in here because before <laughs> that he was in Australia's first Jimi Hendrix experienced trio called Compulsion. Right. They're, they're famous in those days because okay. Reno's about six, six, six foot six, massive Māori guy. <laughs> he was powerful. Mm. So he played incredible. And uh, he he was with the Ladidas mm. and then he joined here after the Ladidas. And then he dropped the NASA trip on one of the nights of the gig and walked off the scaffolding, broke his arm. Oh, so... That next day they rang me up and said, listen, uh, we, we want you to come in and have a look to see if you can do the gig, you know, mm. our bass player's broken his arm. <clears throat> so I went in there and they said, they say, sorry I had to do this, but you've got to play the show tonight. We don't have anybody. Right, you know? right. So I had to play the whole thing. So I had all the sheet music strewn everywhere because just chord charts. Chord charts, okay. Basically. Yep. And so in those stage shows there's little incidental music, there's all sorts yeah. of stuff going on. So I had to think on my feet, but I did it. But I didn't even blink about doing it because in, when you're young, you just, oh, yeah, no worries. You know? Yeah, yeah. So uh, Patrick Flynn was his name, the musical director, and that was an incredible gig. Can you imagine hair, being mm. in here in those days? Yeah, It was yeah, yeah. just such a, a family thing. And everyone, like, we'd be playing away and playing a ballad and we were, like, raised, say, five feet above the action, so we were actually in full view of all the audience oh, right. playing. It wasn't a pit gig. Okay. They don't have that anymore. We were on top of it and right in front of everybody just playing and we'd be playing uh, a ballad and as we're playing a ballad, I'd be going, <laughs> passing a joint to the guitar player <laughs> right in the middle of the song, you know, really? like... <laughs> And the people would be laughing, oh, look, they're really sending it up. But they didn't realise that we were actually smoking serious Durban poison from Africa. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was like those days, it was, a, it was just a, a time. So, and I remember Harry Miller, who was the, uh, the big time promoter in those days who owned hair and all that, He's, <laughs> he came in and said, listen, anyone caught smoking pot will be sacked tomorrow, straight away. So anyway, for one day it lasted. <laughs> Next day, everyone's right. smoking. <laughs> He's not going to sack the whole show. Yeah, is he? exactly. <laughs> yeah. Excuse me. All right. So where to from here? From here, I went to Jeff's and John and the Copper Wine, which was well, you know, teach me how to fly. That's a pretty, pretty great record. So yeah, it was all part of that. With Wendy Saddington live at, you know, the only album Wendy Saddington ever did was the one we did at Wallachia, mm -hmm. which is a really fantastic. And then from Wendy, I joined the third union band, backing people like Doug Parkinson, Rick Springfield and uh, all sorts of... So, how, oh, so how, did, how did that work then? How did the third union band work? Red McKelvey was, was a great guitar player and he had the third union band and... Um, he basically asked me to join and we started backing some really great Mike McClellan some, on, on GDK mainly on the TV shows. Oh, right, okay. So it was just 
doing two songs here and two songs there and then going to the Queensland with Doug Parkinson. <coughs> so that was a, a great band. My sort of uh, first foray into serious country music because he right. was the number one Tommy Emanuel type country player. Right. He was incredible, like just had it all down. Red, Red is a legend. So mm. uh, playing with that band going from full-on soul music to country, I realised it's all the same. It's all groove and right. soul music. You right. know, country's very soulful as well. Yeah. So I think I got my real love for country music in those days, you know, and sort of still now I play country music all the time. It's just fantastic. Mm. Had you discovered Jameson at this stage? Yeah. Yep. I, I discovered him basically... 1968 in Surface Paradise when I was with Jeff Oaks because Jeff Oaks said, listen to this. It was I was made to love her, Stevie Wonder. And right. I went, I knew there was something serious going on there. And so that was the turning point. And about 1970 I had a mentor, a guy called Les Young. Now, Les Young has an amazing career because he was the number one reader in town. Okay. Doug Parkinson, then he went to Hawaii to work with uh, that Maori singer that was big time, like Engelbert Humperdinck. Oh, John Rolls? Yeah, mm. he was John Rolls and he moved to L.A. And Les played serious gigs in L.A. because he was a serious bass player. Mm. And uh, Duncan Maguire was having a tough time in they were doing an album, Airs Rock, in, in the studios in LA and uh, they called Les, Ying, Les Young in to come and help out with the album and then come back to Australia to do a tour with Ayers Rock, mm. which he didn't stay with him for long. But at that time he took me aside and, and basically gave me certain albums with with incredible Jamison going. And that, you know, when a guy like Les feeds you stuff, you, you're going to have a right. real good listen. So I spent a lot of time dissecting what was there. But I tell you what, it was, I don't, that journey started in 1969 and I don't think I hit my stride with the Jamison thing till about 97. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm talking about all that struggle, you know, yeah, trying, right. trying to get there, you know, yeah. and then finally I started doing it, never as good as Jamison or anything right. like that, but I started getting the hook and that's how long it took, mm. 30 years or something, it's like, because they just got to and, – and the thing is now I've just – I still do it and I still keep going because, you know, it's like a – it never ends. The more you you know, the more you got to learn. You know? Yeah, yeah. So do you think it, it's taken so long due to the fact that you were just doing so many other things that weren't so much that type of music, so that was taking a lot of your time and your – No, no, the no? total opposite to all yeah, that. Okay. It's about strength. Okay. Didn't have the strength in the finger. Right. You know, and it took that long to build up. It was like building up that muscle to right. that point. Right. But because before then, basically, I'm playing on the surface of the string. Mm -hmm. But years later, I'm seriously digging into the string, which I didn't do in the early days. I, you just don't know how to, you know, if I'd had been able to talk to myself mm. 35 years before, I would have been incredible. I could have mm. told myself... Now listen, this is the way to do it. Mm. But no one, no one has ever really analysed what he did except me seriously in the right. sense of taking it all away. Yeah. And and the incredible thing is, it's the hook, but he also has his thumb 
placed about right next to it and that thumb is muting just about every note. Yeah. Yep. So instead of bass playing, just playing like He's playing a note and that thumb is actually stopping. That's why it's so clear and clean because it's stopped. Mm. It's like he's pumping and he's stopping it with his thumb. Yeah, people used to think, um, well, I've read that people used to think that he had some like foam muffling under that gu- under, under the guard. Just a normal thing you got with the Fender Precision yeah, that's is right. all he had. Yeah, but people, I mean, because you can, you can See that? I think you can buy the replica basses that have the yeah, well, padding the, stuck under there because well, the, the people that can't do the mute. Yeah, well, the thing is that the, the modern-day bass players who put the foam under there don't realise the foam is not it at all. Yeah, yeah, it's, that's it's, what I'm it's quite. It doesn't yeah. really work. Yeah, you know, the, what, what works is that hard rubber that was in that bass plate next to the bridge underneath that was seriously hard rubber. It wasn't right. foam, right. so it it just just sort of cut everything short. Mm. Which is, you know, it, as music got on to the 80s, remember it, it was all long notes. Yes, yep. And deep drums and yeah, power toms long, and everything. Yep, yep. And also the, the thing is I think with Jamison, because he was a, a double bass player, he strengthened his arms. That's why mm. it was so hard for me to get anywhere near it because he, he was so strong. His arms were a lot shorter than mine so there was serious solid muscle there. Right. So he, he was, he basically, his action on his bass would, you wouldn't, none of the guys these days would have even been able to play anything on it. Right. He was, he was, had the same idea of on the, on the electric bass that he did on the upright, right. working that hard. And he would loosen off the truss rod so that it would bend. So right. it had a banana bend in it as well. Right. Just like an up, you know, so he could really grab it. And I, I used to do that from about 92 to 98. And that's when I, yeah, there's a thing called live at the basement with Renee when you can hear how. It, it really does work. Right. And I think a song called Midnight Train in Georgia, mm-hmm. on that, it's on, on YouTube, but the sound on that is the pinnacle of what I was trying to work out all those years and right. I got it. Awesome. You know, that's serious. Like because I'm playing a bass in and 61 precision mm. with this ridiculous action, I couldn't do it. No way in the world could I do it now. Right. Just, just that period I did it yep. and if I'd had it kept going, I'd be carpal tunnel, I'd be doing uh, right. all sorts of damage. But I did it and pulled back. Now now I do the same vibe but I don't work anywhere near as hard because I've, yep. l- I've learned to, you know, basically get the thing out there without having to slave away at it. Mm, that's good. Which is the good thing about keeping it an instrument when you get old because you actually do get more relaxed and it becomes easier. Not harder. Right. You, well, you, want it, you want it to be that way. Yeah. Well, hey. it does get easier because, yeah. you know, you're no longer fussing about things and mm. you're just grooving basically. Mm. All right. So where were we up to? Oh, yeah, that's why I took, took you back to the – were you sort of into the Jameson thing around the time? Um, After basically Red McKelvey came – my uh, really big gig, which was a band called Mother Earth. Yep. Now that was Renee Gaya singing and uh, Jim Kelly, Mark Punch, and Jim Russell Kelly, Dun- the guitarist. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, and and uh, Mark Punch and Russell Dunlop, 
And it was seriously, we we had lines down the street when we played, right. at the, like in at the Rocks Push. It was all new, and it was all funky soul, Donny Hathaway and mm. Marvin Gaye, and so that went for about a year, and it really sort of set me off on that whole thing stronger than ever because uh, getting to play with a, a singer like that, mm. playing Motown, is just incredible. So. From then on, I basically moved on to, that's when it all started with Boric, Kevin okay. Boric. And then that went on for many years, you know, because uh, the reason I enjoyed Kev so much, he was not so much anything like Renee, it was just get out there and rock, rock your ass off. Right. And he, he used to let you have your head, you know, he'd give you solos and he... He basically wanted you to provide some serious energy, and he always had the great drummers. Uh, he, you know, when I was with with Watto, John Annis, Mark, Mark Kennedy, Kennedy yeah. all all these great drummers with Kev, mm. and so it you know it, that music with a with a great rhythm section can really sound great. Mm. Had you been into a recording studio at the stage? Had you started doing? Recordings on maybe albums or oh yeah yeah, or, yeah, yeah. and did did you did you get into the session scene? Not so much in the <laughs> sense I wasn't a reader and okay. and basically I did I would play a track on this album or, or on this, but I was more of a live yep. live musician. Yeah. Mm. Do you remember your first recording session? Um, well. It's a fantastic story. This this is mm-hmm. like my band, the Amazons, mm-hmm. nineteen sixty five, right? And basically, we we get up every Sunday at a Ray Brown the Whispers gig, and they let us get on the instruments and we play a few songs, and that's how we started. So this is I'm sixteen, <clears throat> and what the guitar player and drummer's mother was was one of those showbiz mums, so she became an agent. Right. And so she started pushing the band. Before you knew it, we had an audition with Australia's biggest record company, Festival Records. Right. And so we went in there and played one song, which was Stand By Me. And the guy came running up and said, you guys are great, you're signed. <laughs> Can you imagine yeah. how easy it was in yeah, those yeah. days? Yeah. The biggest record company, and we played a half-assed version of Stand By Me and we got signed because we were pretty young kids, you know. Mm. Like, and so we put that out and at the time I was working at Nicholson's Record on the like behind the counter mm-hmm. selling records and I was also in charge of all the mail orders to New Guinea. Right. Now the New Guinea natives were crazy about Chad Morgan and Slim Dusty. Right. I mean, Pub With No Beer, I would send maybe 20, 30 copies of Pub With No Beer every day to New Guinea. <laughs> Great. Right? Yeah. Anyway, my record comes out with the Amazons <laughs> and so when they weren't specific of what they wanted, yeah. Amazon's records were going to New Guinea yeah. <laughs> left, right and centre. Nice. Right? And they, they basically... Said uh, they got an e- email from Festival Records saying, <laughs> We find this really hard to understand. We've sold hundreds of copies at Nicholson's, <laughs> but we haven't sold anywhere else. Oh, Jesus. 
Oh. So you can imagine, I thought maybe now I could do a tour of New Guinea, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and did you? Did, no. No, no, but no. imagine the poor lady, if you watch Slim Dusty, he's probably got the Amazons. <laughs> oh, classic. Um, okay, so Renee, Kevin Borich, were you, were you doing both at the same time? Were they kind of... You, you're crossing Renee, over all different parts of the year. Renee was at one of the first Kid Bodge gigs and she said, oh, you sound like an express train. You should call it the express. So Renee, oh, right. Renee named Kevin Bodge Express right. from a gig. Okay. Yeah, so and then basically I think Kevin Bodge touring for about 18 months was so intense because mm. it was all road, 10, 12-hour drives, intense. So I, I finally had had enough and mm. moved. And decided to move to Byron Bay, mm-hmm. which I did for about 18 months and lived uh, a fantastic, like, you can imagine moving to that idyllic place mm. back then. Back then, yeah. So, but I was playing gigs there all the time because, mm. uh, you know, when you're a bass player, you can you can fit in anywhere because it's always the last f- person you can find is a bass player. Right. So I was doing great little gigs all the time. We, I was mm. formed my own band with some great players and we supported B.B. Uh, King, right. right, which is all original music. We had a wrote it all. And then we can't, we supported Country Joe and the Fish. It's like so it was a serious band with no covers or anything, just all original stuff. And finally um, I got the urge, I thought to myself, this is getting a little bit too comfortable here. You know, I could see myself just that's it, living here and having mm. a nice life and all that. And I, I knew something inside me was saying, get the hell out of here, you know. Yeah, right. So I took a weekend trip to Sydney scouting. I'm in Whiskey A Go-Go down in the band room and a guy comes in talking to the guys in the band and he's looking for a bass player for a seven-night-a-week gig in Surface Paradise. Right. <laughs> so imagine my timing of going down yeah. there. He's gone and he's looking for a bass player. So I immediately moved me and my wife moved up to uh, Surf's Paradise and started playing in the band up there. Mm. And uh, I remember one night we were playing, there was about ten people there at the Penthouse nightclub. One was Bob Hawke on the dance floor, right? <laughs> and he was getting friendly with this gorgeous girl. And I went downstairs and saw the bouncer, other guy had signed, and he's, he came and said, check this out. He signed in as Malcolm Fraser. <laughs> <laughs> No, it's oh, well done. Yeah. <laughs> so crazy times and surface. Yeah. And then basically from surface I went back to Sydney and had probably one of the three or four gigs of my life, which was two incredible years with Barry Leaf Band at the Musicians, at the Musicians Club. Club. Mm-hmm. Imagine all this just seemed to just yeah. <laughs> navigate itself. Yeah. And that was seriously just mind-blowing in the sense that Barry vocals, having someone like that up front singing is Mm. just incredible. And we had Steve Housen from the Little River Band and Sunil De Silva, who's now Australia's top percussionist, but he was playing drums, sensational drumming. And we'd have have Dennis Davis from Stevie Wonder's band come in. When he came in, he would play all night. It wasn't jamming. The drummer would sit down and Dennis would play the whole night. Mm. Because he, he was just that sort of a guy who wanted to wanted to play, and I the the clips of me playing with him they're on YouTube as well. Oh right! And it was my first sort of real taste of what 
an incredible black American drummer, what it feels like to play with one of those guys. Right. It's like, wow. It's like serious, snappy, yep. snappy energy, you know. It was, and I, I think I played sort of a lot years ahead on that gig that I, you know, just playing with someone like that, I noticed, mm. yeah, yeah, I was sort of, he, he made me play so much better. Oh, great. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah, that was a... There was a pretty heady time in Sydney at that at, at that time too, eh? Four nights a week. Yeah. Imagine, yeah. And, and Friday, Saturday, lines down the street. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it was sort of, uh, and with Barry, it was Bod Skaggs those days. It yeah. was like the, he was massive. So Barry would basically, and then it was a pretty big dance floor, big dance, like mm-hmm. really big. And he'd play the beginning of low down or guitar thing. Within 30 seconds, Chock a block. Yeah, the dance floor was packed. Yeah, just because he he provided the the earlier band was Leon Berger, who were a fusion based band who had Mark McEntee from the Divinals in it. Mm-hmm. All that he had all the heavy sort of fusion musicians that are famous now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah, it's just just amazing a bunch of guys back then. Mm. I had Barry on the podcast. Yeah, and he talked about that that time. Yeah, well, and, you, and, and you know how the musicians club came about, how that gig came about, and the run of it. Yes, awesome, awesome to hear it. Oh, it was so great to be that timing of me being able to get that gig because mm. well, how exciting it was to get out there and play dance music and funky stuff with guys like that. And mm. so that was really good. From then on, I went straight to a band called Boy Rocking. Mm-hmm. Which was uh, Mark Williams and Mark Punch, right? And uh, that was pretty exciting, you know. Because it was all the days of the new, new age sort of Prince and all all that sort of stuff. And Mark, I, I personally feel that Mark Williams is one of the most incredible singer musicians I've ever heard. Yep. And I, I'm a little bit disappointed that he hasn't really made an effort to get his music out there anymore in the sense right. that he he settled into a, a great lifestyle of teaching and yep. playing with dragon. dragon yeah. But I feel that he, some of the songs that he wrote there, original-wise, were incredible. Mm. So it's almost like sometimes you can get a little bit too comfortable mm. just because when you're that talented, you know, when you're that voice and, and that much uh, artistry going on, Mm. It's like oh, I'm a bit disappointed that because oh, I expected him to be a massive star. Right. He, I mean, he did, you know, and probably still does um, do a lot of work as a as a backing singer yeah. as well, background vocal session yeah. sort of guy. And but his stage presence and his performing is just mm. incredible. He's, he's a front man. Yeah, definitely. You know, and I. I'm hoping maybe he'll get back and do a serious original album because I still remember there's two or three songs that would you wouldn't believe how incredible they were, mm. and you could even do them these days and they they'd sound amazing. You might have to give him a call and give him a give him a rev up. <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, well you know he he obviously has got a great lifestyle. Yeah, you know, and you know, to to do what I'm talking about, it takes a you really yep. got to jump out and it's uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. Hey, I hope you're enjoying this episode of the podcast. As you know, the Gig Life podcast is free. You don't have to pay anything ever. But if you find the value in the Gig Life podcast, you can donate or leave a tip 
go to thegigglifepodcast.com, click on that donate button and give as little or as much as you like and just know that anything you give will go back into creating great content for this podcast. All right, back to the episode. So, yeah, we're into the 80s now, aren't yeah. we? Um, what other stuff were you doing through the 80s? It was uh, boy rocking and then from boy rocking, um, I'll, I've got to tell you the Aussie crawl story because yeah, yeah. it, it's classic. It's, yep. it's, I get a call from Watto. He says, oh, listen, listen, mate, um, our bass player can't seem to get a groove in this song and I played him that demo that you did with in your house which was a breakdance team. Seriously, and I had a one-inch tape machine and a, the, the killer drum machine, so it was high-tech funk. Yeah. High-tech yeah. funk. It was yeah. really fantastic. So he played them that and they went, oh, shit. And ask him if he wants to come down and try this track, you know. So they fly me down to do this track and they were happy with that and they said, well, you know, there's another one here that's sort of not quite... You know, so, so I did that and went back to Sydney and not thinking anymore. Anyway, get the call on Sunday. Oh, we want you to come back, you know. Right. There's a few more. Well, this happened about three or four times. In the end, I'd done everything right. on the album. And the, the poor bass player was walking around the studio at the time. Imagine what he's, he must have been thinking. That was kind of, that was a common sort of thing. Well, I, I know in the US that stuff would happen all the time. It's artistic but, though. Yeah, oh, it's for all sure. about It's all about... The, the the people in sort of with the, the vision... Yeah, the producer. ...want yeah. to keep moving ahead and they realise basically either the bass player is just not serious enough to move with me. Mm. So he, he wants someone in there who's going to be that serious about it, yeah. about the instrument. Yeah. So the final thing was this was basically uh, they said there's one track that he played really good on but, you know, we're going to go out and have some Japanese now and you to give it a go. And I'm in the biggest studio in Australia, AAV, right. pressing, smoking a big joint and pressing record. Right. Right. Putting the last track down <laughs> while they're out having a Japanese meal, you know. Right. And anyway, they came back after the meal and said, yeah, that's it. Wow. So that was it. Now, I knew I'd have the gig, obviously. And, right. we, you know, a few weeks later they rang me, said rehearsal start and so on and so on. Well, it was what a what a fantastic and I'm so grateful to Watto for that he probably had no idea what he was doing. Right. When he asked me to do that one song. I'm sure he just thought, you know, you know, I don't think he realised it would eventuate into a, a serious um well, you know, making the band and I'll be honest with you, I think getting me in the band was probably the worst move they ever made. Oh, was it? Because that? it was no longer Aussie Crawl. If you have a listen to it, it's very refined, more like Steely Dan or somebody, you know. Right. It's very musical and very, um, you know, like it's it's so different. Mm. Whereas had they kept the old bass player and kept more to that style, it would have been a bigger hit, I think. Right. So it's, it's sort of I feel like I'm part of the, the reason for their demise, really. Because mm. I I read something that yeah the album didn't didn't do so great, and then you guys had to tour to try and recoup. Yeah, the seven cost months of, nonstop. Yeah, you know, and they spent six hundred thousand dollars on it. Back, oh shit! Back then, I thought well, I read four hundred, but six hundred. Back then, out. yeah, right. And so there went poor old everybody's leg. <laughs> you know, like, right, right. 
And uh, the great thing is I think they were on a, a retainer, like what on that, but I was getting on a wage, which was bloody <laughs> great. Right. So uh, it worked out fantastic. But, you know, to experience a gig where you walk on and you don't even pick up the bass, Rody puts the bass on you and that's yeah, right. It's like one thing I wish every muser could experience because it's mm. a lot of fun. And I, they used to buy me a set of Rotosound bass strings, expensive strings, two a week. Wow. You know, all that. And so when I finished that gig, I had a box full of the incredible bass strings that <laughs> right. lasted me for many years. Right, <laughs> right. They bought me all sorts of stuff. You know, they, you know, when you join a band like that, they have a lot, lot of connections with gear and mm. setting, you know, it's fantastic. How far into that tour, or, or even before the even the, even the tour started, was there talk that this that was probably going to be it? I think probably from, from the beginning. I okay. think yeah, because I think the rest of the band, like Brad, Brad basically was James's best friend, so he he was just they were just very close. But Simon could see James. Bringing all these musicians in, earth, wind, and fire horns, okay. uh, gospel singers, and incredible Hammond players. Mm. Got another guitar player to do a lot of parts, I, and I think he was really put out. And I had a guy sort of message me saying that Simon said he didn't play anything on that album, which is ridiculous. Because right. <laughs> I was there. I said, man, I was there. You know, he did a lot of. He, he's disowned it basically. Right. Which is silly, you know, it's part of, you know. But, uh, I, you know, if you have a real good listen to it, it's an incredible album, mm. but it's not Crawl. It's, right. it's James's first solo album. Is that right? Yeah, that's what it is. Did you ever get to play with those guys again? No. Only that? Watto. Only Watto, yeah. Yeah, and Watto, we hooked up. Pretty much straight away with Renee again. So, okay. on and off, we've all even a few years ago. I still do. We, we, you know, we might get a call out of the blue every now and then because she knows if we get me and Watto, it's going to be pretty good. Awesome. You know? mm. But Watto, he's amazing. He does. He is, yeah. He's flat out all the time. Although not at the moment in Melbourne, mm. but he he's such an amazing uh, craftsman with doing all sorts of uh, say. Carpenter stuff. Mm-hmm. He's he's out there working every day, earning money. Yeah, I've like, seen seen his posts on Facebook. He's up fixing roofs. Yeah, yeah, that. yeah. He's basically really good at that. Yeah, you know, he's, yeah. You know, and also he charges people probably half of what they normally what a guy normally charges. Okay. So he's definitely in demand. You know? mm-hmm. So he he does bathrooms and porches and 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 you can see it keeps him pretty fit. Mm. So he, he, I don't think there's been any problem about, although he would miss the playing, I mean, mm. seriously, because he's, he, he, he of the videos of, uh, of Ozzy Crawl when I was with them and you check out Watto's yeah, face, yeah. it's so intense. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we are both so intense about it. Mm. And that's a, isn't that a great thing that to want, to want it to be that great? Mm-hmm. You know, that's what it is. I think James is very lucky to have Watto. Mm. And because Watto's still playing, yeah, with oh, James now, yeah. Oh yeah, that's they, they're hooked up. Yeah, cool, very good. Okay, so after Aussie Crawl, after, did you have something lined up once that the Crawl tour finished? Well, you know, after that, Renee went to America, okay. right? And I did the big tour with her, and uh, 
I got I got a call. She she she'd had a run in with Jim Kelly in Perth, and basically, uh, Victor didn't have anything to do with it, but he was still sacked as well because he was friends with Jim. Right. So she rang me up and I joined them in Adelaide from that part of the tour. And uh, from then on she went to, did a, another big tour, she went to America and she said, come over to do this festival in Texas. And and Kevin and I went, Kevin Boric and I went over, stayed at her house, at a flat in New York. Mm. And the second night we were there, we got invited around to Ron Wood's house. Yeah. Right? Renee, me, yeah. Kev, and we were Ron Wood's basement till four or five in the morning jamming. Oh, wow. You know, and he was, man, what a sweetheart he was. He had his arm around me after an hour of meeting me, Fantastic. sitting on the couch, and he said, hey, check, out, check this out, Harry. He was showing, he was showing on the TV the uh, Clive, you know, the Dudley Moore, those, those mm. sort of really, the ones that they couldn't use right. on the album. He's showing me the videos of them. Yeah, yeah. And he said, I want to check this out. And I couldn't believe it was so friendly. Wow. Which is mighty, you know. And so that was a great introduction to, to America. And then I came back and basically, let me think, what did I do? Back to Renee. Mm-hmm. She, because she came back and started touring a bit. And that's that was basically Kev and Renee all the way through the 90s. And when I hit 2000, I was very lucky because I did the Ted Mullery benefit when he was really sick, mm-hmm. just before he died. Mm-hmm. And Chuggy put that together and he got us to back Russell Morris and someone else, and uh, he was on the bill as well. So when when it came time to uh, basically get the band together for a long way to the top, mm. well, Kev basically said to Chuggy, well, you know, these guys, are, you know, Mark Kennedy and Harry will be the ones. And so Chuggy immediately said, yeah, you're right, bang, got the job. Right. And... That, the great thing about that was, can you imagine doing Long Way the Top because that spun off to working with Brian Cadd. Right. Doing tours with him, doing tours with Russell. Mm-hmm. And so, and and all these different artists because of, of that. So I was flat out, it was years, and that's where, you know, it all happened with the doctor and all that, right. after all that. So Long Way the Top was a, was an amazing push of my career because from then on it was like so many great artists that I'd really liked all those years, although I toured with Russell first in 73. Right. So way back. And I remember back then what a sweetheart he was. He's just one of the the greatest guys to hang with, Mm. always complaining. (laughs) (laughs) He was great to hang with. Yeah. During, During all that time through the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, was there ever a stage there where you weren't, you didn't really know where the next gig was going to come, or did it just seem to always? It's, from what you're saying, it sounds like there was always something. Yeah, there. never was. Wow. No, never was. I've never had a time where I haven't had something in my sights. Just like uh, to, for me in this town, the last say eight, ten years, I'll be playing with Mitchell Anderson. Mm-hmm which has been incredible, and because of the COVID, he hasn't played for a while and things have cooled down on gigs and mm. I hooked up with Jesse Redwing and he's like 31 or something. Mm-hmm. 
And to be with someone that good and 40 years younger than me and yet we're on the same plane, mm. I feel very fortunate because that, that uh, alongside with Mitchell, is the two strongest gigs in the last 10 years. Mm. So uh, I've been really digging that because it's not some club gig. It's you're getting out there with the young guys. Gotcha. Same with the rhythm section and and doing that thing. And, you know, you're, you're 40, 40 years older but actually playing with them makes you feel the same age. That's fantastic. Yeah, so I, I never play with anyone as old as me. Mm. Mm. Let's um, talk a little bit more about your um, your technique. Yeah. So we've talked about the hook. But you also, you, I mean, people people listening, you know, just, just Google Harry Bruce and you'll see how he holds a guitar. Um, you've got this uncanny knack of being able to slap with like this continuous sort of how can I how can I explain it through audio? Um, it's like Waves. a shake, Waves. like a wave. It's kind of like you're waving yeah, yeah, and yeah. using your using your your thumb yeah. on your lower strings and the rest of your fingers on the other strings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, it's a continuous thing. What I when I first started. Um, learning bass and I was sort of looking at slap players and stuff. I used to watch some Victor Wooten stuff and Victor Wooten would have this exercise where he'd get biddle a biddle a biddle a biddle a biddle a It yeah, was just yeah. these triplets but just like... Um, sections. Just sections of triplets. Whereas you'll go biddle a 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 biddle and then just... Yeah, not, yeah. Not, not like a... It's not like a, a pick sound... And it's not like a finger sound or fingers. Yeah, it's the actual slapping. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. I, you know, the, where I first discovered that technique was in around 1970 when I dropped some acid, mm-hmm. and I'm in the bath and I put my hand under the water, and I did that basically that whole technique back in 1970. And I, I looked down and I could just do it 10 minutes, just like that, just wow. like that. And I, this is 1970, and I realised, oh, this is pretty cool. Yeah. <laughs> so, but I didn't really get into it till the 80s. Right. But you can imagine the years of me falling off the perch trying to do it. Mm. You know, when you say continuous, in the early days, I'd do that for a few seconds and then fall off, and but I'd get back on. In the end, when you get back on enough, it doesn't happen anymore. Yeah. So now I can do this. Yeah. I could do it for half an hour and yeah. without blinking. Yeah. Just no just from and that's the other thing apart from the hook is that you won't find anyone doing that on YouTube. No. no. Nobody does that. Right. It's it's a, it's a unique little gimmick of mine, you know. I wouldn't call it a gimmick. Well, you know, <laughs> it it what, what a gimmick in the way that I do it. I've been to gigs where the audience is playing with some bands where the audience has been a bit blasé and I go, okay, check this out. And I get out there and they all just, they all start basically taking notice because it's right. something going on. Right. You know, it's like that's how hard you have to sort of wake them out sometimes yeah. and then slap <laughs> them. So I use that and and working with Keb all those years, Keb, every gig would give the drummer and the bass player like mm. three, four minutes solo. Right. So here I am having the opportunity to hone this stuff all the time, just honing it. Mm. So it was Keb that I had the opportunity to live to try to get it together. Yeah. So, you know, it's like and, and now it's, it, you know, it's 
I, I, I think the Jamison thing is a lot more interesting in the sense it's a heavy groove, whereas, yeah. whereas the slap thing is more of a visual yeah. thing, you know? Yeah. Now, you you played a gig with uh, Joe Walsh. Yeah. Yeah, tell us how that went down. And Mate, it's, you know, playing with Joe, I, I basically thought I'm going to use a, a five-string with flat-wound strings, like, like the Motown strings, because mm-hmm. they sounded so deep, and it was a good move because we, it sounded so great on the, on the tracks. Mm. And all we did was we had maybe an hour rehearsal with Joe. That's it, right. bang, for the whole set. But you know, because we were working with Joe, I mean, Mick Skelton, the drummer, and I, we got seriously. We made sure we knew all our marks, and we played that gig faultlessly. Just and I think he would have been pretty knocked out that a bunch of Aussie guys can just jump on board and do it that slick, because Mick Skelton too, yeah. what, a, what a drummer, yeah. You know? and so having him on board, man, and then Keb playing second guitar, probably such a highlight, just powerful stuff. Mm. When was that? That was at the Luke Everingham Farm, which he puts on every year, and he it was it's a charity thing, and Joe came all the way out for nothing to do wow. that. So that wasn't in in conjunction with any Eagles? Nothing. No. Just, just he came back maybe a month later with the Eagles. Oh, right. So it was only just like a month before his tour. But he was, it was when he'd stopped drinking first and doing drugs and everything. So he was straight as a die. So I, I was a bit disappointed because he hardly said anything. Oh, right. Yeah, he was just quiet as a mouse. Right. And like rehearsed and then played. It was amazing, but he, he you could tell he was having a quiet time, not, you mm. know, like finally like Clapton stopping mm. stopping all that stuff. Yeah. Like when we did the Clapton tour, which was incredible with Renee, what a band we had. And, you know, the great thing about Clapton is he put us in, put us up in all those swish hotels with him. Yeah. You know, the, normally the, the support band... Down down yep. the street. Yep. No, he put us in those great hotels, and 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 uh, his backing singers would take us out for lunches, and wow. and we had Ricky Fatar on drums. Do you know Ricky Fatar? I've heard the name. He's the drummer with. He was with the Beach Boys, and he was uh, he basically been Bonnie Raitt's drummer for twenty five right. years. It's something now. Right. So we had him on drums. So you can imagine how good it was. Right. And what. It was Duck Don on bass, so imagine hanging right? out with Duck Don and we'd be sitting around the couch with a couple of musos and he'd be telling us the Blues Brothers stories and oh, man. imagine sitting with Duck for hours on end, you know. Yeah. Sweetheart. So we've got Jamison on the side and then we've got Duck Dunn over the side. How how much did Duck Dunn influence you? Well, uh, probably well, not. Obviously, there's three, there's three, my biggest three influences were James Jamison, Supreme. Then came Jerry Jamont, mm-hmm. who is a lot of Aretha records, and he, he he's where I got that funky stuff, doing 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 all that from. And then the smooth. See what I do now with the hook. I've actually evolved that into a cross between Chuck Rainey. And James Jamison because Chuck Graney did it all with one finger as well. Oh, right. 
And, but he did it with backwards and forwards. Yep. So he was hitting on the upstrokes. Yeah. So now I basically have a like a combination, combination of yeah. those two. So those three guys were it for me. But Duck gave me the blues roots. Okay. What what a Duck taught me is to play a blues. Don't busy it up. Mm. Just keep it so organic and straight. You listen to Duck and and some of those. Songs, the bass lines are just so mm. simple, not busy, but powerful, yeah. powerful. All that's Sam and Dave and Knock on Wood and yeah. all those things. Mm. And and the sound, he basically, that's the sound of the precision bass with labella bass strings. They're the strings that are that sound. That's Jamison used them mm. and Duck Dunn used them, mm. whereas Chuck Rennie used Fender which was a different tone, sweeter and bubbly. So, mm. But Duck was, was if all his recordings with that, with that combination of the precision and the labellas, that sound is, it's so thick you don't hear that anywhere anymore. Right. These days they compress it, mm. they use lighter strings and the bass seems to be monstrous mm. but it's all illusion. Mm. It's an, if you listen in your car, it's boo. Yeah, yeah. It's illusion. You put on duck done and that boo comes into a boom. Yeah. <laughs> Solid unit. Yeah. You don't hear that anymore. You Probably know? all comes down to them sometimes being, what well, early days being mixed in mono. Yeah. Because you can't hear that shit. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, and there's certain Paul McCartney, I mean, Paul yeah. McCartney blows my brains out of how yeah. incredible he is on the bass, mm. for, mainly for, for the, the incredible... Ideas on some of those songs is no one else would have ever come up with those lines. Yeah. It was only Paul. Yeah, and some of the so- bass tracks are recorded really shittily, mm. and then you get some that you think, "My God, listen to that bass sound!" So mm. some of them were incredible. Yeah, but it's a hit and miss with some of the, uh, the bass sounds with with some of the songs. But when mm. you, when you hear some of the ones where it's like just incredible, mm. and do, doing I. I Spent a few times doing the uh, Let It Be tour, which is all okay. around Australia, doing the big concert halls yep. of the Opera House, yep. doing the Beatles with an orchestra and mm-hmm. all. And I, it was that, that's when I found out how incredibly complicated Paul McCartney's work was because I'd be in, in this lounge room here hour after hour trying to sort it out. Mm. Penny Lane, I mean... It's frightening. The bass line <laughs> on Penny Lane is frightening. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, and, and I finally got to play it with Glenn Shorrock on Long Way to the Top. Right. And I pulled it off. But, right. I mean, that that is any bass player trying to learn that, that that's seriously, you know, and I am, you know, like Day in the Life and all those mm. things. But Penny Lane was was incredible. And I remember the, not, the time we did it, I wish I had a tape of it because Glenn, Glenn Shorrock had had a, Beer few whiskies, I think. Said, and he started off with Penny Lane, the barber wears another photograph. <laughs> <laughs> I'll never forget it. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think the crowd got it? Oh, I'm sure they noticed, you know, yeah. like, but he was like, he's having a good time. Good. And, and uh, Doug Parkinson always had, like, I think, three whiskies, little with those little whiskies, mm-hmm. ready for when he came off. Okay. Right? And one time Jim Keyes hid them, <laughs> right, when he came off and Doug was, he was running around trying to find you. He was going to uh, meet them. 
Jesus. <laughs> oh, Jimmy. Hey, we were saying, Jimmy, he's, he's out. He's going to get you. He's going to get you. <laughs> you. So just go back to the slapping. Who were some of the slap base influences? That, well, Larry Graham was the first, yeah. oh, but yeah. my main number one is Louis Johnson. Mm-hmm. Everything... Uh, as far as slap, yep. I, it's it's that's he's it for me. See, guys like Victor Wooten, they go way past that funk. Yeah, you know, Lewis yep. Johnson is serious yep. funk, mm. but the, the chops that Wooten and some of these other guys have, way they go mind-boggling. But they think you can lose a certain pulse mm. when it's that busy. Mm. Whereas Lewis Johnson, he just, 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 and you know, he pulled his hand back like this yeah. far. It's like, yeah, it's intense. You just need to listen to him, the, Michael, the early Michael Jackson stuff. Yeah, oh I mean. no, he, he flips me out, and I can't believe he lived down the rumour there for a while. Is that right? Yeah, he followed some girl out here, and I wish I, I, I would have taken the drive <laughs> down. The fanboy. Yeah, <laughs> I would have sort of followed him around. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, when did you start singing? I've always sung one or two songs in nearly everything I've done. Okay. Know, just sort of back in the early, even in the early days. But I think what it is is it's so hard to find a guy who can sing who's going to do my gig. If he's a singer, he's got his own gig. Okay, gotcha. In his own band. So, right. you know, so it's necessity in a way. And, you know, the thing is I'm... The more you do it, the better you get at it. Mm. So I'm still working on it. It's something that I really enjoy working on because playing bass and singing is a, is a mind fuck. Yeah, right. <laughs> it really yeah. is, and mm. I know. Especially that the way you play too, it would be. <laughs> it, it, and the thing is, if I, I've always thought this: if I was allowed to have a band where I was a singer, I could finally sing. Right. You know, like. I've learned all these years of what to do because when I'm not playing instrument, I can sing much better. Right. But being anchored down to the bass playing brings this higher level of singing down to a more something you can cope with playing the bass. I understand. So, I mean, if I was, if I had really two minds, I could be so much far further ahead on it. Like Mark King. Uh, yeah, <laughs> you know, can yeah. you believe that? It's, oh, it, mate, it's you know, incredible. but I tell you what, I'm getting much better at it because mm. years ago I found it a lot tougher. Mm. I used to really just miss a lot more, but now is I, that because you were more focused on? You you were t- talking earlier about, you know, having you know through that stage in the nineties there where you really had the Jameson thing down. You were putting a lot of your focus into that. Yeah, once you took your foot off, it probably allows a little bit more. Bandwidth, I suppose, for singing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, I just know that I've learned a technique now that I do when I'm singing, which is Mm. I actually keep a very strong, like a triplet with my hand. You can't hardly see it on the video, but it's going boom. And that is going continuous so that I'm pushing that strongly so I can concentrate on the vocals rather right. so, so that I have a, something strong going, you know, so right. this pulse is going, whereas I didn't have that before and right. I was a bit more at sea. Okay, good. Gotcha. So now I'm, I'm learning more and more so, like the ultimate in singing and playing bass is a fellow called Doug Williams. Mm-hmm. Have you heard of Doug oh, Williams? Oh, yeah. 
man, that guy's ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's like Mark King, probably more intense in the sense. Oh. He, he's just but, sings the most incredible Marvin Gaye and then does the most incredible bass line. People actually don't realise what an amazing bass player he is because the bass lines he's playing are the ones in Philadelphia and Detroit. And yeah. The, the real thing. Stuff and the real thing mm. is like that's mm. why whenever I see Doug play, it blows me, blows my mind. Mm. It's like seeing. I, I first saw him on his first night in Sydney, right. at Whiskey A Go Go back in '74, I think it was. Mm. Just arrived, and the whole of the town was like, wow, because it was the Temptation, sh- like a Temptation show. Mm. Three singers out front, mm. and each one was like. Mind blowing, mm. and then Doug had the band with Greg Tell and Bobby Warren, the mm. trio, and those guys went back, the singers, and the rest of the guys stayed here, mm. and so Doug started picking up gigs with Marsha and all, and Renee did mm. that live at the Dallas Brooks Hall gig. So you know he's he is one of my heroes. You mm. know he is whenever I see him. I give him a big hug. Yeah, a friend of mine's been playing drums with with Doug since he was Johnny. Johnny, yeah, yeah. Oh, he's Johnny's yeah. fantastic. He's great, great to play with. He's yeah. he's very strong. He he really kicks it. He does. He's yeah. great. No, he's great. He played drums in my band at my wedding. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, no, fantastic. <laughs> I have to hide him. To he's also <laughs> such a cool dude because I remember I dabbling in the drums myself and I'd go okay. into Billy Hyde's and he'd sort me out and yeah, take right. time and do best. this and do that. He saved know? me a lot of money, that guy. No, he's a, he's a sweetheart. I like <laughs> yeah. Johnny. Yeah. He, um, he's been on the podcast a couple of times. He, um, we did a one-on-one and then we also did a tribute to Jeff Beccaro. Right. And then Johnny was, was on that with us. Yeah. It's well, just yeah. a... So much knowledge. That shuffle and that oh, yeah. that originally came from uh, Bernard, Bernard Purdy. Bernard Purdy and, and <laughs> John evolved Bond. into that, mm. yeah. Wow, amazing, yeah. eh? Yeah, I like Johnny. Yeah, he's cool. Um, I was lucky enough to do a gig with him with Doug Parkinson. Was was that uh, Lazotte's mm-hmm. five years ago? It's fantastic. Right, right. Um, what do you do outside of music? Well, you know, most of my days are spent downstairs writing. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm still looking for that elusive song that, you know, is going to do something, you know. Okay. So, and <laughs> it's basically the, the hard drive's got, I must have 30 yep. beginnings, you know. So I'm right. basically just working on some of the better ones. And, you know, it's, it's a lot of fun because I've got a whole shitload of key, keyboards down there. Mm-hmm. It's a friend of Rose and guitar amp, so I do it all myself. Mm. So And these days with the drum loops, yep. I mean, it's amazing you can get a high-tech high sound without exactly. going to a big studio, you know. Exactly. You know, it's all due to your drum sound, to how how good your your thing is going to sound, you know. Mm. But then you get those Stax records where there's two, two uh, mics in the room recording drums and they <laughs> sound better than <laughs> right, these eh? high-tech guys that have spent... Close yeah. micing, forty mics, you know, and all That's that. Right. It's I, I find some of those earthy blues records with the drums, you know, mm. incredible. Mm. Apart from that job in the uh, in the um, record shop, and apart from being a musician, have you ever worked? Is anything? Yeah, else? I, I worked at the taxation office. Oh yeah, in filing system and. Right. It was like, you know, Lee Commonwealth Employment sent me there when I was 67 or something. And uh, 
basically pretty boring. And I let my hair, my hair was growing a bit and they said, you know, you better cut it or we'll send you to the Gulag, which was this building in where the Anthony Hordens was. It's just like you're forgotten. <laughs> you know, it's like where all the old files are right. and dust and all that. <laughs> if you don't get a haircut, we'll send you to the Gulag, you know. It's like, Shit. And so I left <laughs> rather and get a haircut. That was it. Yeah, and then I worked and uh, my last day gig was 1967, yeah. It was, I was the repair manager for Vulcan heaters. Huh. Right, and winter you'd be flat out. Yeah. Summer you did nothing. Right, of course. So, but how, no, I wasn't repair manager. I was working at this place that was doing the repairs for Vulcan heaters and the guy that was in charge of the petty cash was ripped off maybe 20 bucks or something. And he got sacked. Right. And so, they came, you know, they had a big um, dinner for me, lunchtime pub, you're being promoted to the repair manager, <laughs> right? This is your start of your career yeah. with Vulcan and you can move up. And, and basically uh, they took me to the pub for the big thing, went home and basically came visit my girlfriend, tell me uh, about the good news, and out of my girlfriend's apartment comes another bass player. He'd been giving it to her. Oh. So that really upset me, you know. So, and then I get a phone call from Jeff Oaks. You know, we got a six-night-a-week gig at Surface Paradise. Perfect. So from that being promoted to repair manager, I never went back. <laughs> Right? And I got my mum to ring up. <laughs> so a week, how weak was that? Oh, you know, mate. I felt too embarrassed. Yeah. Mom, Harry won't be in anymore. <laughs> so oh. that was that was the end of my, that 67, the end of my day gig thing. I never worked ever again. Right. That's so it was all go from then because joining Jeff, that was serious, like serious stuff, from, mm. you know, nightclub stuff. Mm. And so I came straight back to Sydney and uh, worked with a band called Peter Lawrence Band, doing all the, the different pubs. They had a great pub circuit. Mm. Remember, Neil? Oh, you wouldn't know. They, there were some serious pubs that would put on bands yeah. two, three nights a week. And so you'd have. Oh, a, I mean, I know from doing this podcast that. I've, yeah, I've yeah, there was that. a great bunch of gigs you could do. Mm. And from then on came the gig that probably. Changed it all for me was with Tony Gahar and the Inn People, mm. which was we opened a place called the Inn Place, which was uh, a brand new sort of nightclub type thing. And Tony Gahar, that band was just incredible. Mm. It was like uh, three horns, the the uh, alto sax player Bruce Johnson went to America and was voted number one baritone player in the world for about five years in a row. This was our alto player. So right. you can imagine the calibre of the musicians. Yeah. We had a singer called Ron Barry, who's amazing, and a girl called Janice Slater. And so the vocals were amazing, Hammond organ. And there was a bit of a mutiny from the keyboard player because he wanted to get rid of me because I couldn't read. You know, the, it was a, a funny thing with readers and non-readers in those days. You, you were looked down upon if you couldn't read. Mm. 
And the, the drummer had recorded one of the gigs and went to the singer and said, no, 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 he grooves. <laughs> so I kept the gig. <laughs> they told him to stop it and so I kept the gig, you know, because, yeah. you know, that's what it is. I groove. You yeah. Know? So, so he, he recognised that because he'd been playing with guys that didn't groove, you know. Yeah. So that, that Tony Gahar gig was amazing because he took us into Checkers and that was the top echelon of music from there I went to hair. So it's all mm. it's all linked and there was never a week where I wasn't sort of going somewhere. That's know? awesome. And Blackfeather, you haven't talked about Blackfeather. Mm-hmm. That's the first serious sort of heavy band in Australia. Like, I mean, Mountains of Madness is still, you know, I think it's like 500 bucks a copy if you get hold of it. Wow. It's just, and... Uh, John Robinson, nearly every gig would drop acid for every gig. Right. And you'd, you'd have 800 to 1,000 people in the audience, cross-legged, and they're all just as out of it as John. Wow. And me too. I, I was going to say, sometimes. what about you guys? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we too. We dropped it. Mm. And, and a guitar solo, I kid you not, was 20 minutes long. Yeah, yeah. And you'd think it's boring. No, it's these people are all going on the journey with yeah, John, yeah. you know. Yeah, And finally what happened is John... Had had enough of the singer, the lead singer. They really, it was like that old band story of they couldn't stand each other. Yeah, he sacked him, and the guy had a number one hit, and he sacks the singer. Oh, <laughs> Talk about sabotage <laughs> and timing. Yeah, and so he sacked the singer, and I had to do all the vocals. Right. I, the, the, the next Blackfeather had me doing vocals. Right. Oh, wrong. <laughs> that early, you know, but. We, we limped along for a month and then gave it a miss okay. and the singer formed another Blackfeather and capitalised what he, what John should have capitalised on, the number one record. Right. And then he had Bop and the Blues and all that. Mm. That was the new Blackfeather with a mm. piano-based style. Mm. But, uh, yeah, it was amazing. Then John and I went to a band called Hunger, which is in Jonathan's, right next to the old Grace Brothers building there in Broadway mm. and we were uh, there four nights a week and we were getting paid 50 bucks was our wage. Well, we were quite happy. We were working four nights a week and there was two bands on and Sherbet were the other band mm-hmm. and and John Spooner was the manager and he was the most amazing character because he was – he would – he came up to me back in 1970 and said, James Jamison, he's saying to me, yes, this James Jamison, it's all short notes. And I'd never thought of it that bad. Right. And so there's another right. piece of the puzzle. He told <laughs> yeah. me short notes and I think something stuck in my head. So he was so into it. He had Daryl Braithwaite sitting in a chair reading Sydney Morning Herald. I was sitting there for, for diction. Right. He was making Daryl read the Sydney Morning Herald to get the diction right. And that's why I think, <laughs> right, imagine just yeah, reading yeah, stories yeah. on Sydney. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and you, probably why, Daryl, probably you can understand him so well. Right. You know, sort of that's what this guy was sewing. He was like this sort of backstage mum really. Mm. Mm. It's so serious about it. It's fantastic. But left that and like I said, just... Kept on going. Yeah. Have you ever been back to Austria? A couple of times. Okay. Fantastic. Each mm. time visiting. I hope to go back and, you know, I think with this COVID, there's nothing going to be moving for a couple of years, I reckon, properly. Mm. So, but I'm definitely going back, yeah. Mm. 
Do you still have family? All my family's there. Wow. I don't right. really have my – I only have my brother here. Okay. That's it. Is, is he a musician? No, no, he's retired. He retired at 53. Good financial. Okay. Dude, you know, yeah. rich financial dude who plays golf every day, you know, <laughs> tennis and, you know, and we're only 80 months apart. He's 80 months older. Mm-hmm. But he's he loves – what I do, because he'll come and film it and do some great clips and so, yeah, yeah right. sort of, uh, he's seen how hard it's been all the way through. Because you yeah. imagine doing nothing but music with mm. no day gigs, it's not that easy. Mm. But, man, I never owed a lot of money, just found a way of navigating through. Mm. Mm. And how many, so, so you have been a professional musician since? 67. 67. Right, so yeah. that's... For 50, 53 years. 53 years, wow. Yeah. It's just, you know, and i tell you why. The, the secret is I really work my ass off mm. on the instrument. You know, when you're in the act of, like, uh, practising and working on the instrument, that's when things happen mm. in gigs, whatever, when you're at work. As soon as you slack off and stop doing it, it's like the fading of a record. Mm. You fade. You get less gigs, you know, and so, so it's all about your passion keeping it that powerful. Mm. And it's worse than ever now. It's still the same for me. Right. What about for younger players these days? How much tougher do you think they got it? Um, I, Obviously there's not the gigs. Yeah, you know, I, I'm, how, how fortunate have I been in the sense of riding that ride right to the end? Yeah, Because yeah. <laughs> this is what, it is the end. The next part is the beginning of something, something new. Something else, yeah, true. It's not the old days. It's mm-hmm. not going to be like that at gigs anymore. Mm-hmm. This this thing will linger for years. Mm. And, you know, it may, will make people appreciate going to a gig. Yeah. And, and well, you know, it's like... So in some ways it's good, some ways it's not as good. But mm. the young players these days, like guys like Adam Ventura, you know, incredible. Mm. Just, just uh, the facility, and I, I get knocked out. You know, mm. although there's not that we're talking about two or three guys that are really mind blowing. Yeah, and there's a lot of other really great players, but yep. they 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 stand out. Mm-hmm. So, uh, I, and whenever I see a young guy that plays good, man, I make a point of going up and telling him, mate, you're oh, playing great, always, because I don't see it that often. Mm. And when I see it, I want to let him know, hey, you're on it. <laughs> How do they take it? Oh, they, they you know, they like it. Because oh, I'll be, I've been at Balmain Markets and some guy's been playing a duo and oh, I hear yeah. it. Yeah. I hear it, I think. Wow, that's fucking great. I'll go yeah. up and tell him, yeah. yeah. And now that guy's playing with Simon Kinney Lewis. Right. Right? right. He was playing in the markets. And yeah. I told him before he was getting the gigs how great he was, you know. Right. And Mike Ricks. Mm-hmm. Do you know Mike? No. Well, he was, he's the number one, like, blues guy in, in all the blues bands. I saw him playing. He was playing upright. But, you know, you, you can tell the expertise within a few seconds of, right. you know, when you've been at it as long as I have, you mm. know, you can tell. Mm. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's been pretty good fun. I did a a streaming with some of Australia's top bass players about a week ago. Right, I tried to get I Craig's tried, stream. Yeah, I tried to watch that, but I, I couldn't. 
Because it was on the, it was one of the uh, bass player Facebook groups, eh? Yeah, private private groups. But it's out there now. I think it's on right. YouTube. But uh, oh, that okay. was so much fun. Like mm. Roger's incredible player, and Craig from Hey Hey. You know, mm. I mean, all those amazing gigs he did. Mm. So uh, it was mighty to be on. Uh, you know, talking. It's it's so easy to talk with guys like that when mm. they've been through the same yeah, sort yeah. of yeah. rigmarole that I have. You know. Yeah. You know, Craig with Farnham and, uh, you know, like Roger with all the bands he's been with. Like Roger was the bass player on The Voice right. from Farnham. Right. And I, I always wonder, it, it's sort of so weird when I see The Voice because Greg McCain's from Skyhook is mining, miming that bass part. Oh, right. And to me that's so weird, you know. I right. think to myself, why didn't Johnny get Roger who played it? Right. And I was, it was the same with Horses, with Daryl Braithwaite. Mm-hmm. He got some model to sing Margaret Ehrlich, to yeah. mime Margaret Ehrlich's part. Yeah, I mean, a... how ridiculous, <laughs> really. Yeah, great. It's ridiculous. Here's yeah. this wonderful singer with this brought half of the vibe to the song mm. and they get a model to mime it. Mm. Yeah, it's just that sort of stuff is weird. Mm. Yeah. All right, Harry Bruce. Thank you so much for being on the podcast, um, letting me into your house and sharing just a bit of your story. And um, I'm looking forward to coming out and watching you play and, and hanging out and have a beer. And It's great meeting you and being in such good company with all the other people you've had on the podcast. No, sweet, man. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, yeah, all the, all the best through the rest of the COVID stuff and, and um, your music and your health and... Yeah. Wish, wish you all the best. Yeah, yeah. Uh, hopefully you'll be sort of podcasting me in a few years again. I hope so. <laughs> yeah. I hope so. I'll get you involved in a like a maybe a roundtable or something. Yeah, something sure. Like that. That'd be cool. Great. Sure. Love right. to it. Thanks, Stevie. That's much appreciated. Sweet as. Cheers, Harry. <laughs>